Hello, everyone. Welcome to Appetite for Discussion TT. I'm Karen Das, and in this health series, oncologist Dr. Akash Maniam and I discuss topics related to cancer treatment and the future. Hello. Yeah, great to be back. Today's topic is cervical cancer, but Dr. Maniam, we have a question from someone who listened to the prostate cancer episode. This person wanted to know if the diagnosis of prostate cancer will lead to impotence and its impact on fertility. Excellent question. So they're both, I guess, two separate things. So impotence definitely can occur with prostate cancer, and it can also occur as a result of some of the treatments for prostate cancer. So, for instance, surgery and radiotherapy. It's not common, but it can occur. Fertility is a very different thing because that more relates to the production of sperm and. By and large, prostate cancer itself does not affect that. However, the treatments for prostate cancer can commonly include suppressing the testosterone. So that would impact on uh, fertility because it would impact on, you know, the production of, of sperm and semen. It will also impact on libido. So the sex drive would also be affected because we're blocking testosterone in many of these cases. But... In clinical practice, it's not a very commonly encountered scenario because most of the patients affected by prostate cancer typically are those who have completed their families most commonly in their 70s, 60s, 80s, etc. So it's not a scenario that we frequently encounter. However, the impact on libido certainly is relevant. Thank you. Now, if you have any questions for Dr. Maniam, you can leave me a message and we'll address this in the next episode. Today, we focus on cervical cancer. Some people say cervical cancer. Yes, it falls under the category gynecological cancers, but it doesn't make this simply and solely a woman's health issue. It affects women and men, as well as parents, which you will learn in this episode. So, Dr. Maniam, let's get started with some statistics. I mean, how are we looking here in the Caribbean? Do we have enough data to work with? And I know you will let me know uh, how we look in the world with cervical cancer. Again, it's a bit more difficult to say specifically for the Caribbean. However, globally, it's the fourth most common cancer in women. Okay, every year you have maybe half a million women diagnosed around the world with cervical cancer. And Unlike with, say, breast and prostate cancer or colorectal cancer, there is a very sharp discrepancy between the prevalence of cervical cancer in the developed world and the developing world. It predominantly affects women in the developing world. So it is certainly more common in the Caribbean. It's more common in uh, Africa, Latin America, and Asia than, say, in Western Europe and North America. And we'll discuss why a bit later. But certainly in the Caribbean, it's, it's a lot more common than we'd like it to be. It's certainly something we see a lot more of than, say, in the UK, uh, where rates have come down significantly over time. Are all women at risk for cervical cancer? Yes. So it's quite simply, all women are at risk. However, there is a, a strong correlation in cervical cancer, unlike, say, with breast and prostate cancer, where the, the risk factors are a little bit more let's say traditional, you know, alcohol, tobacco, obesity, etc. Cervical cancer, the main risk factor, overwhelmingly is infection with a virus called HPV or the human papilloma virus. That accounts for almost all cases of cervical cancer, actually the vast majority of them, which is unique because most cancers are not so tightly linked to a viral cause. HPV, human papilloma virus, how common is that virus? HPV is a group of viruses. There, there are several different types. 
even though they're linked to maybe about 99% of all cervical cancers, which essentially is all of them, thankfully not everyone who has an HPV infection is going to get it. It's still relatively rare in people who have it because HPV is something almost everyone gets, males and females. It's, it, it's sexually transmitted. It's very common. But most of the time, the body clears it with no lasting damage. Most of the time you have it, you don't even know you have it. Your body deals with it, and that's it. But in a smaller percentage of patients, you get long-term infections, so chronic infection. And in a small percentage of those people, it can induce changes in the lining of the cervix, which is at the top of the vaginal canal. That can then become cancerous. So it's like a pyramid. Lots of people have HPV. Of those, a smaller number will have long-term infection. Of those, a smaller number will have changes that could become cancerous. And then of those right at the top, the smallest number will be those who develop cancer. So don't be frightened. Even though it's common, not everyone is going to get cancer because of it. Ah, that is reassuring. But there's also the HPV vaccine. I'm really glad that you mentioned it. This actually is one of the two big reasons why the developing world faces the brunt of cervical cancer versus the developed world. Screening and vaccination are the two biggest interventions that have changed the landscape of uh, cervical cancer. And the HPV vaccine is one that has been developed many years ago. And it doesn't cover against all types of HPV, but it covers against some of the most common types. And I say some because there are several different types. Some cover against two, some cover against four, some cover against nine. There are different types. But broadly speaking, they're taking the most common ones that can cause cancer and giving it to people ideally before they are sexually active, before they're sexually mature. So very commonly it's given to boys and girls. And it's critical that we understand that even though it's a cancer that affects women, boys have to get vaccinated because they play an equal role in transmission of the virus and we all have to protect each other. So we're looking at vaccinating boys and girls, you know, in their early teenage years, around the time of puberty, around 11, 12, 13, the different guidelines based on the country. But you're looking to get people vaccinated before they're exposed to the virus. And that honestly has been revolutionary because even though there is a little discrepancy in the data, they all agree that the, the rate of reduction of cervical cancer is close to 90%, which is incredible. And in some of the more developed countries, say like the United States, they have had follow-up for over 10 years and the protection doesn't seem to go down with time. So it's not one of those where you need a booster every five years or 10 years you complete your primary course and you're protected for a long time. Well, I'd like to extract us some more information about this HPV vaccine. I mean, over the past couple of years, we were just bombarded with all sorts of information about vaccines. If we didn't know anything about vaccines before, we learned a few things. You know, who are the makers of vaccines, how vaccines are made, different types of vaccines, how they're distributed, a shelf life of vaccines. Now, with the HPV vaccine being around for as long as it has... And uh, with uh, this being recommended for children, and I can already see parents raising an eyebrow here, I think it's equally important for us to understand how this HPV vaccine really works in order for us to build greater confidence in its efficacy. I'm glad you asked. Yeah, you're right. Two years ago, this would have been so much easier to, to answer. There's been, it's such a topical issue to talk about vaccines. But I think whatever people feel about the COVID vaccine, we don't need to get into it, but the HPV vaccine has been around for a very long time. It's a traditional vaccine. It's, there is long-term safety and efficacy data. And although we have lots of good data for the COVID vaccine, for the HPV vaccine, we have over 10 years of you know safety and efficacy data. 
Now, it's a more traditional vaccine. There's none of this mRNA, this and that that people are hearing about COVID. It's, it's very much a simple vaccine where essentially it tricks your body into thinking that it's been exposed to the virus. There's no actual virus in it or anything else. It's made of what we call rec recombinant proteins. So essentially, you're putting inactivated particles in there, non viral stuff so no infection we're putting proteins into the body the body and the body's immune system looks at it and says well this looks like hpv i'm going to generate an immune response against it and produces antibodies against it so therefore if the body encounters the real hpv virus it's already been primed so it already has an army of antibodies ready to go to attack the virus and kill it so it's not infecting you therefore there's no risk of cancer or anything else with the vaccine but it's making your body feel as if it's been infected to produce a very effective response against it. So it's very safe, very gentle. That's why we give it to children. Um, it is not a one-shot vaccination. Like many of the other childhood vaccinations, it requires multiple doses. In this case, it requires just two, six months apart. So you get it, say you're an 11-year-old, you get it, and then you get it again before you're 12. So it's six months apart, you have two, generally. Although for some people who are older, you may end up getting three to complete a course. But in the UK, you get two. But it's no different to many of the other childhood vaccinations, the measles, the tetanus vaccines, etc. We all get multiple ones of those. I guess there should not be any panic or anything else. This is an old school vaccine. It's very good, very effective, very much normal. Okay, so from vaccination, let's go to screening and testing. Whenever we come across a topic of cervical cancer trust you will hear about a pap smear. So Dr. Maniam, tell us about this pap smear, how this pap smear works and how it helps in early detection for cervical cancer. You're absolutely right. And that's the second thing. So screening and vaccination have revolutionized the way cervical cancer is dealt with. So vaccination is aimed at prevention, which is always better than cure. And screening is aimed at detection. It is very simple, it's very commonly available, and the thing is, in Trinidad and Tobago, we're quite fortunate that we have access to pap smears, we have access to the vaccines, the vaccines are actually included in the national screening program. We actually have access to these, so there is definitely the ability to be proactive in preventing cervical cancer. But I would say any, any woman who is sexually active, and certainly anyone from the age of 18, should start looking into having cervical screening with regular pap smears, which Honestly, there are different guidelines for, but I think at least getting it once every three years until the age of 65 is, is, is a safe way to go. But depending on what they find, they may do it more regularly, like every year, if they find some cells that look like they may become cancerous over time. But the pap smear is a very traditional way. There are more modern tests, which are very similar, but the pap smear is still very useful, very cheap, very reliable. And I guess for those who don't know, it would involve going to see your you know, physician or nurse and having a speculum examination, so an examination of the vaginal canal where they insert a plastic or metal um, instrument to open the vaginal canal, insert a, a brush, and then they take some, some samples from right at the top and send it to the lab to have a look at the cells under the microscope. It's unlike a colonoscopy, it's very quick. And although it is uncomfortable, it's usually much better tolerated than a colonoscopy or something that's more invasive and lasts for longer. And obviously the advantage is that you, you pick up things at a very early stage. In addition, you can also test for HPV. You can test for the presence of HPV using um, the same procedure. So you can identify people who are at even higher risk of developing cervical cancer. So anything, you know, if we have to take anything from this podcast, I think screening and vaccination are the two most critical things here. 
we shouldn't be thinking about treatment. We should be thinking about prevention and early detection. But if I'm already vaccinated against HPV, I already have the HPV vaccine. Do I still need to get a pap smear? Yes, for a couple of reasons. One, the, the vaccine doesn't cover against all the types of HPV. So there will be some strains of HPV that can cause cervical cancer that are not covered. Uh, secondly, the vaccine protection, although it's extremely high, it's not 100%, even though it could be around 90% or so, it's not 100 Therefore, it will there will still be some people who can develop cancer. And thirdly, even though the vast majority of cervical cancers are caused by HPV, there is still a, a significant minority of those cases that don't. And so therefore, for those three reasons, you, vaccination should not replace screening. We should be doing both um, just to catch the ones that you're not going to be covered for. I realize that there's strong emphasis on HPV. Are there any other risk factors for a cervical cancer? Honestly, I think if we had one takeaway, I think HPV is the one thing to take. I mean, there are some other risk factors like smoking, uh, sometimes family history or exposure to some compounds like diethyl, cholesterol. But honestly, HPV accounts for nearly 100% of the cancers. Therefore, it's the one I think one has to focus on. And the risk factors that contribute to HPV infection would be things like having sex with multiple partners and not getting yourself tested or checked regularly, possibly even HIV infection and those sorts of things. So I think a lot of the focus has to be on managing HPV risk itself. Okay, well, here's the thing, Dr. Maniam. This might be a bit uncomfortable for some parents listening because parents really generally don't accept or don't want to accept that children are engaged in sexual activity, which is how you contracted this HPV. So, vaccinating children, that's a hot topic by itself. And then when you bring HPV into it and what that virus is, that as well is a bit of a taboo area. Then you have women who have never had a pap smear. Some women don't care to have a pap smear done. And then you have men who think, well, I don't have a cervix. This is not my problem. Maybe women should be the ones to go get themselves vaccinated and screened and tested. So how do you reach those groups of people? And if you're not vaccinated and you're not going to get screened or tested, if you are at risk for cervical cancer, any signs or symptoms we should be aware of? Actually, I think it's interesting because unlike say with breast screening or prostate screening or colorectal screening, with vaccination, you're really actually looking more at the parents than the children because you're looking to vaccinate preteens. You're looking to vaccinate children who are finishing primary school, early secondary school, and really the, the onus falls on the parents. And that's where we tend to fall flat because there are lots of taboos and lots of religious objections, etc., to the vaccine that honestly, on a practical level, don't really hold much sway. There are lots of misconceptions that say, you know, vaccination encourages promiscuity or sexual behavior, etc. But that has never been proven because the rates of cervical cancer are still extremely high in the developing country, which suggests that vaccinated or not, sexual activity is a completely separate issue and needs completely separate solutions with education and awareness and all of those other things. The vaccination just at least means that your children are safe. And it's, again, not limited to women. Boys absolutely should get vaccinated. They play an equal part in this because they're also spreading HPV. They can also get certain illnesses from HPV, but for cervical cancer, both boys and girls play an equal part in transmission. So they both need to be vaccinated. But whether one is vaccinated or not vaccinated, the signs and symptoms of cervical cancer can be a bit vague. It can be as simple as pain, so pelvic pain, pain deep down in the pelvis. But more typically, what you're looking at is bleeding, abnormal bleeding. So bleeding after sexual activity, and that's called postcoital bleeding in medical terms. And 
So bleeding after sex is, is, is one of the most common signs of cervical cancer because it suggests that something is irritating the lining of the cervix. Unusual discharge. So if the discharge is heavier or the smell is stronger or there is more mucus or there, it just is completely out of the norm for what many women would normally have. That's something that we look at. We look at more painful sexual intercourse. Definitely, that's something that is quite common. We also look at irregular bleeding. So bleeding in between menstrual cycles or bleeding that's a bit heavier than usual. But honestly, I think as far as anyone is concerned, I'd say that any bleeding that is out of the ordinary for what you normally would experience during a menstrual cycle should always be flagged up. The older you get, the more concerned we are about abnormal bleeding, not just for cervical cancer, but for other cancers and health issues as well pelvic pain, pain after sex, and unusual discharge. I think those would cover the vast majority of common symptoms that one should look out for. And as much as we'd say, you know, women should be empowered to look at these symptoms, I'd also say men should be fully aware of this because if you see this in your partner, if you see this in your, your girlfriend, your spouse, etc., you have a role to play in, in making sure that she also gets the care she needs. So if everyone is aware, then we cut the risk significantly down. Um, so I'd say both men and women should be aware of what cervical cancer could be because once it's developed, if it's more advanced, it's a devastating diagnosis. It's a very difficult diagnosis to treat. It's a very difficult cancer to cure. So that's why we're spending so much time on early detection and prevention. Ah, there's so many questions, but I have very little time left. But you, listener, you have access to great information on the website Caribbean Cancer Research Initiative, and you can also follow them on Instagram. You'll find out more about uh, their services as well, including a free service called the Telehealth Service. So Dr. Akash Maniam, he's an oncologist practicing in the UK, and he's been very gracious with his time for these episodes on the Cancer Podcast. He's a clinical director there at the Caribbean Cancer Research Initiative. So Dr. Maniam, thank you once again, and we look forward to our next episode. As we wrap up, how about you share some details about that telehealth service? Yes, thank you. So I guess as we said previously, it's, it's mainly an advisory and supportive service. It's not to undermine the care that you're getting, but to fill in the gaps, fill in the information gaps and the support gaps that you might feel were not addressed during a very busy clinic because we know how busy they can be. So if you need advice, you need support, you're not sure about something like what is chemo, what chemo I'm on, is it is it a side effect of it, etc. Things that you, you just didn't have time to ask, just reach out to us. So go on to our website, which is ccrinitiative.com. You can contact us directly through the webpage. You can contact us via email, via WhatsApp. The phone number is there. So you can just reach out and one of us will take your information and address whatever it is that you're bringing um, and we'll help you as much as we can. Thank you for listening. Remember to catch up with other episodes of Appetite for Discussion TT. Knowledge is power. Here's to a happy, healthy you.